Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 127, Edwin the Conqueror. All right, last week, we finally saw the fall of Aethelfrith and the rise of Edwin of Deira and King Raedwald of East Anglia, Bretwalda. As you probably have gathered, this would not be the last time we will hear of Edwin. In fact, right when we left off, there was a bit of a cliffhanger. Sure, the battle had just concluded and Aethelfrith was bleeding out on the banks of the River Idol. But what now? I mean, nearly every time we talk about the North, what do we talk about? Dynastic struggles, right? Well, here we have King Aethelfrith of Northumbria dead, but not his sons. His sons have legged it. So that's a bit of a problem for Edwin and Raidwald. Not only that, but while some in Deira might not be that crazy about this Bernician king ruling over them, scholars argue that Aethelfrith had been rather efficient at eliminating rivalries and solidifying his power base while he was in charge. And if that's the case, even in Deira, this might not have been seen as a liberation and a return of the rightful dynasty. It might be seen as an occupation. And in that case, they might find themselves facing off with a rather entrenched resistance. So, just winning on the battlefield might not have been enough for Edwind and Raidwald to secure their position over the northern Anglian kingdoms. It's a bit of a headache when you think about it. Sure, Edwind and Raidwald had an organized army, and following that battle, it's pretty clear that, you know, Northumbria didn't anymore. They didn't even have a king, though Raidwald did have some ideas about that. So if you look at it from that direction... Going up north and taking the throne might seem like a natural decision. After all, why fight Aethelfrith if it wasn't to take control? And what better time to take the throne than right after the king was dead and his army was scattered? But still, what a nightmare. By all indications, this region was a powder keg of dynastic troubles. And by taking the throne, they could find themselves spending the rest of their lives fighting an insurgency. Or worse, they could end up like one of Ida's sons. And no one wants that. But on the flip side, Raidwald couldn't just take his army and go home. I mean, the sons of Aethelfrith were still out there. And if he didn't press his advantage, they might step in, take the throne of Northumbria, and march to East Anglia in search of vengeance. And while Aethelfrith might not have had the best of claims on Deira, his sons, at least one of whom was the son of Acha, princess of Deira, well, they did have a legitimate claim to both Deira and Bernicia. So giving them a chance to solidify their power could result in lost opportunities, as well as an almost certain future war with Northumbria. And you could all but guarantee that that was what they were up to while Edwin and Raidwald consolidated their forces and determined what the next course of action should be. After all, they were descendants of Ida. They weren't going to take this lying down. So all of these things must have been on Raidwald's mind. And don't forget that Regan Hera, the king's own son, was dead, as was any number of other unnamed thanes as a result of this battle. All of this needed to be for something. To fight a brutal battle and lose the heir apparent, and then just march back home with the only accomplishment being that Edwin was left alive? Ugh, that probably would not impress the kings and thanes of the south. So marching north was probably the only sane option. 
despite the issues that it might have carried with it. Now, the sources really don't tell us what happened here, beyond stating that Raidwald installed Edwin as the king of Northumbria. And I get why Bede, who really should have been our best source here, might have been a little tight-lipped about what occurred. First, Bede was generally pretty friendly to the Northumbrian rulers. And second, Bede was also pretty friendly to Anglo-Saxon Christian converts. And spoiler alert, Edwin was going to make Bede a pretty happy camper in that regard. So if things got ugly during this transfer of power, I'm guessing that he might have wanted to softball it to a certain extent, and just give us the ends while ignoring the means. So we aren't given details on what happened when Edwin and Raidwald went north. But I want you to keep a few things in mind. First, Edwin was a noble from the north, so ruthless dynastic struggles were probably in his blood. Second, he probably was not exactly feeling that normal. Seriously, I know that many psychological conditions are tied to culture as much as they are to experience. But think about what he went through. He had been on the run for ages, was hunted, and even had family members die as a result of this all because of invasions and infighting. So if he wasn't concerned about power plays by rivals before, he probably was now. In fact, it isn't that hard to see how he might be oversensitive to that possibility. And third, well, Edwin wasn't going north alone. He was backed up by King Raidwald. And Raidwald and Edwin, as well as presumably their army, were disciples of the old gods. Gods like Thunor and Woden, gods of war and death, and they were both Anglo-Saxon leaders. I can't emphasize enough how, despite certain familiarities between us and them, these people were alien. We're talking about a culture that needed a word for the pole that you use to hang the corpse of your fallen enemy. Whalestang, for those of you who are curious. And it roughly translates to dead body pole. They needed a word for it. That implies a hell of a lot about the way they handled victories. Now, like I said, we aren't given details, but you can imagine their entrance, can't you? The great king of the south, Raidwald, and the rightful king of Northumbria, Edwin, at the head of a full complement of veteran warriors as they marched right into the heart of Deira, leading Edwin home after so many years on the run. What must the people of Deira thought as they saw these foreign warriors entering their lands? The older veterans, bearded, bloody, and radiating a cold professionalism in their movements. The younger warriors, many of whom would have been only around 15, who were probably still working on chin scruff, which, until recently, gave them a youthful look. But now, even these boys were full members of the war band. Something about them had changed. They'd faced their fears carried out their training, and killed for their brothers and their king. They were warriors now. And it wasn't just their behavior that would have inspired fear. Think about what they were carrying. They were probably outfitted in battle-tested leather armor that was still lightly stained with blood. The younger warriors probably carried spears, the weapons of Woden. And I wonder if they would have washed them, or if they would have left the blood and viscera where it dried, as a warning. And as for the veterans, can you picture what their swords, sheaths, and shields must have looked like? The garnet claws on a might have given their weapons the impression that they were still drenched in blood, 
and to a certain extent, they probably were. Even if they carefully washed, the gold filigree probably still held some of the grim reality of that battle on the banks of the River Idol. Their shields would have carried the scars of battle, announcing to any who saw them that they had faced their enemy, they hadn't broken, and they had won a great victory. Even their condition would have contributed to the power they projected. Those among them who were uninjured would have provided a sense of invincibility, and those who were injured probably loudly telegraphed the fact that these were powerful veteran warriors who could not be killed, even when struck in battle. And ahead of their column, do you think they displayed the body of Aethelfrith, the broken and bloodied corpse of the usurper, possibly hung on a whale sting like a macabre standard announcing the coming of the new king of Northumbria? The arrival of these men must have been awe-inspiring or horrifying and your perspective depended on your politics. And what of the thanes that the southern army met on their path through Deira? Those who fled to their homes after the battle, what became of them? Were they given amnesty? I don't think that there was a great deal of forgiveness to be had, especially since Regan Hera's body was still warm. The nobles who stood against Raidwald and his son might have made an easy target for the great king's rage. And besides, could you really trust Aethelfrith's thanes and Werons? They were expected to be loyal to their king, even unto death. And if they set their loyalty aside now, how long would it be until they set it aside once more? Moreover, even if they had not fought in Aethelfrith's army, even if they stayed home, the fact of the matter is, these men had supported Aethelfrith, and could well have aided him in his struggle against Edwin's family. How much mercy do you think either of these kings would have had for them? And besides, there were plenty of loyal warriors who stood with Raidwald and Edwin, and were probably looking forward to some form of reward. So if the army of the south felt the need to clean house, it's unlikely they would have been short on manpower. And as for Bernicia, think of the fear that everyone in the northernmost Anglian kingdom must have felt at this moment. They had dominated Deira for quite some time and now their king was dead, and the head of a rival dynasty, a Deiran dynasty, was marching into their lands, probably right into Bamber, along with the bloody army of East Anglian veterans, and perhaps any Deiran supporters that they had picked up. Make no mistake about it, this would have seemed like a foreign invasion. And then you have the possibility that Edwin and Raidwald might have been marching in with the corpse of the fallen Bernician king ahead of them everyone would have known immediately who was in charge. They probably were terrified, and none more than the nobles. The nobles must have known that they had a target painted on their chest, and it's not hard to imagine that Edwin and Raidwald would have been looking for a little strike back, in addition to the realistic, though ruthless, desire to ensure total domination of Bernicia. Now, maybe Raidwald and Edwin were a soft touch, Maybe all was forgiven and they feasted with the nobles to form new bonds of fealty. Maybe, but I doubt it. We don't read of any sort of massive insurgency or anything that would indicate that the transfer of power was marred by internal struggles. And that's pretty unusual for the North. Not only that, but the sons of Aethelfrith, and he had seven of them, didn't cause any sort of significant civil war that we're told of. And that makes me suspect that Raidwald moved fast, 
marching into the north and installing Edwin as king of Northumbria. And when he did it, he did it in a way that left absolutely no doubt who was in control. Namely, Raidwald of East Anglia. Sure, Edwin of Northumbria ruled, but it was probably the continued support of Raidwald, as well as a less-than-delicate installation of Edwin, that provided the stability that we're going to see in Edwin's reign. And we're seeing something else here with Raidwald's actions. For the first time, an Anglo-Saxon king reigned supreme over the kingdoms on both sides of the Humber. The ascension to the throne may have been a triumphant moment for Edwin. In fact, I'm certain it was. He had gone from homeless to the most powerful king in the north. But the real victor here was Raidwald. He was a true Bretwalda. Perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of the Bretwaldas. And you can make an argument, maybe not a winning argument, but definitely an argument, that he was the first king of England. I mean, he certainly looked like an overking of all of the Anglo-Saxon territories at this point. This man was a powerhouse. And I think, had he had the benefit of scribes the way Alfred did, that he would have been a household name, and he might have earned the moniker The Great. But what we can be sure of here is that with the close of 616, Raidwald reigned supreme. Now, you might be saying, hey, what happened to Edwin's sister, Acha? And that's an excellent question. We just saw a massive shift in power, and Acha, in many respects, is sat right at the axis of this whole mess. And you might remember why. She had either married Aethelfrith, though the records are silent on the existence of that marriage if it happened, or she might have been a forced concubine. Whatever the case, we know that she had at least one son with a fallen Bernician usurper. So her story must be a fascinating one. But unfortunately, we just don't know what happened there. In fact, we have no earthly idea if she was even alive at this point or if she had died earlier. And if she was alive where she stood on this whole transfer of power. Was she pleased that her brother was on the throne? Was she mourning Aethelfrith? Was she killed in the struggle? Did she go into hiding? Or, as I just mentioned, had she died long before any of this had happened? We have no idea. She just vanishes from the record. And most of the sources, what little there is, are generally just focused upon Edwin and Raidwald. But let's move away from our power couple for a moment. I'm talking about Edwin and Raidwald, of course. And let's have a look a little to the southwest, to the kingdom of the Elmet. Things must have been getting pretty interesting over there. Can you picture the absolute hysteria that must have been seizing the court of King Cheritich? I mean, Hereric, the nephew of Edwin, had been poisoned in his court. And it's widely thought that Cheritich had ordered the poisoning, probably in response to a bribe or threat from King Aethelfrith of Northumbria. And at the time, I bet it seemed like a wise choice. Northumbria was dangerous, and Aethelfrith had shown his neighbors time and time again that he was lethal on the battlefield. So why risk angering him? Besides, the Deiran dynasty was decimated. There was no point in dying in battle and losing his kingdom simply for a noble from a fallen and broken dynasty. I can absolutely see why Cheritich might have poisoned Hereric. And he probably didn't give it a second thought. After all, what possible downside would come from it? It isn't like Edwin 
probably one of the last members of that rival dynasty, would end up finding an army that was willing to fight on his behalf. I mean, what did he have to offer in exchange for the service? No way would anyone launch into an open war against the most powerful king in the north, maybe in all of Britain, over a vagabond prince. And even if Edwin could find someone that foolish, Aethelfrith and his men were nigh invulnerable. He'd have to find a way to get the best warriors from the south to unify and fight for him. And even if that happened, who really cares? Even if Aethelfrith lost, he would just remarshal and defeat him in a subsequent battle. The north was vast, and Aethelfrith commanded the fealty of a great number of thanes and sub-kings. He could just regroup. I mean, it isn't like the mighty warrior king would lose his life in the battle. Can you imagine a messenger arriving at the court of Cheritich and letting him know what happened at the Battle of the River Idol? And then the king just staring in silence for a minute and then muttering, Are you f***ing kidding me? No one could have predicted this. But here it was. King Cheritich of the Elmet instantly went from having a relatively safe border with Northumbria to having a border that was definitely in threat. It wasn't like Edwin was going to let this slide. His nephew died in Cheritish's court. By poison? How could the new king let that slide? His thanes would never respect him. He'd have to go to war. And that urge to go to war was even worse considering the fact that Cheritish and his kingdom were British. And the Angles of the North had shown time and time again that, you know, they were rather eager to fight their long-standing rivals, the British. So I'm sure it won't surprise you to learn that it didn't take long before Edwin came for a visit to discuss his grievances with Cheritich. Now again, the dates here are a bit soupy, but it looks like this happened pretty soon after Edwin took the throne, maybe within a year. And while it was a pretty short trip to make, Edwin didn't visit Cheritich alone. He arrived with a group of his closest, and most spectacularly dressed, friends. We aren't given details. And to complete this story, scholars have had to assume that Cheritich was the same person as Cheridig ap Gwathlog, which he probably was. But the point here is that, even with our sparse sources, we know that King Edwin invaded the Elmet, and King Cheritich died as a result. So we're seeing that Edwin was not a man to be taken lightly. He was a lion. And it looks like Cheritich learned that firsthand. And that knowledge is probably why Aethelfrith's sons had bugged out and fled to Ireland and Scotland. Now, of particular interest is Oswald, the son of both Aethelfrith and Acha, meaning that this guy was a serious threat to Edwin's claim on both kingdoms. And he was now hiding in the kingdom of Dalriada in the north. And that's pretty interesting for a few reasons. First, because once again we have hints of future dynastic struggles in the north with another Anglian exile living in a foreign kingdom, undoubtedly plotting his return. So that's fun right there. There's a nice sort of symmetry there. But there's another thing that's interesting about the fact that Oswald could take shelter in Dalriada. Do you remember the Battle of Degsistan? That was the battle where Aethelfrith and his brother, Theobald, and obviously others, were fighting against Dalriada as well as their allies. It was a big battle, and it really didn't end well for the Celtic kingdom. In fact, Bede claims that they lost so badly that it broke the kingdom's will to fight against Northumbria. Well, that happened barely over a decade earlier, and the defeat was the result of Oswald's father, 
Aethelfrith. That kingdom had every reason to hold a grudge. And yet here we see them harboring Oswald rather than turning him away. It really makes you wonder what happened there and what sort of agreements were worked out between the dynasties following that battle. But anyway, regardless of what Oswald was up to, the important takeaway from this episode is that Edwin was not just ruling over the north. He was also flexing his power, reaching into neighboring kingdoms, and probably seeking vengeance against those, like Cheritich, who stood against his family. Basically, Edwin fit the model of a northern ruler. And his rule was just beginning. Okay, as you might be aware, this show is made possible entirely through member support. So if you'd like to be part of the project and help keep the BHP free and independent, you can do so by becoming a member over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Membership is cheap, around the price of a latte per month, and it comes with all sorts of benefits. Not the least of which being that warm glow you feel inside knowing that you're a good person. And who doesn't want that? And if that's not enough, there are other things as well like bonus episodes that you're going to get access to. So please consider supporting us. Now, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just search for at britishpodcast. And we're on Tumblr. Just look for britishhistorypodcast.tumblr.com. And there's the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Click get involved and click forums. And we'll see you over there. All right. Thanks for listening.